FS Podcasts. We are a student initiative from Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, a business school located in Frankfurt, Germany. In our podcast, we like to bring different guests with interesting background to talk to us and share their opinion on various diverse topics. It's my pleasure to bring to you, uh, along with my colleague Danny, uh, as your co-host, <laughs> we'd like to welcome Michael Klein. Um, welcome. Yeah, I feel welcome. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, I mean, Danny, he's our professor, but um, Mr. Klein has a lot of experience in the doing business field and in international business, but also with in economics. I guess we'll get a lot into that uh, as the topic of our podcast today is doing business internationally. So Very well. It's good to have you. I mean, <laughs> I, I, Danny, if you could speak for all of us here, I, we enjoy your glasses. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. Yeah, Yeah, but I like it anyway. <laughs> it's good to sit you down and have like these, these you know, kind of one-on-one -on -one conversation, you know, it's, it's a little bit more informal. I feel like I can get to hear a little bit more about you. I mean, because... One thing, first of all, I had no idea you were from Washington, D.C. At first, I thought you were from Washington State. So let's get a little bit of that back. Ah, I, yeah, I, that major difference. Yeah. At first, I thought you were Just from... Just a few, thousand, Orlando, few yeah. thousand miles difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just a few. I Maybe thought you were from... <laughs> oh, say that? No, I was going to say, say kilometers for our, our audience. Oh, yes. Oh, like we're in a kilometer audience. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, good, fine. <laughs> but you said Washington State or, or D.C. I thought it was Bonn. So tell us, where ah, were you from? Yeah, where was I born? In Bonn. Okay. So you now I live in Washington. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what do you consider yourself now? Do you consider yourself more American or? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> we moved around a lot. Yeah, so a little bit here, a little bit there. So uh, either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and actually, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine with that too, yes. So, although these days, that's not, all, uh, not everybody's view. Okay. But so not as much German then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's not let's not split our audience, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so, how was growing up for you? How was it with your family? Was it strict? Uh, no, I, I I have nothing to complain about in my life. So, uh, had a nice family life, and, and and so my parents were very good. Um, the only thing that we grew up in a little village, you no, know, about seven houses. What, seven? Yeah, seven houses. When I left the oh. village to go to the World Bank in Washington, uh, roughly 5% of the population left at that day. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought where well, I was from was small, but that's... Yeah, <laughs> that was a significantly small. Yeah, so not much happened. Yeah, so... Wow. What kind of shock was that, moving from just... I f it was phased in, so I yeah. traveled more and more until I finally got a job. Yeah, yeah. kind of sounds like a, um, an Amish man coming. Yeah, out and trying to go out it's it's world. like an it's like in that kind of environment you're only you're forced to study. Like study is for fun, right? <laughs> yeah, there was not much else to do but read. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that, that, that was that was part of the deal. Yeah, yeah. So lots of reading. Yeah. Okay, so what do you want to be when you're growing up? I'm, I'm thinking, young. Yeah. Young Dr. Klein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, young Dr. Klein doesn't really remember what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> or old Dr. Klein doesn't remember what it was like to be young Dr. Klein. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not calling you so, old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but still. So it's a bit hazy, no? So uh, what did I want to be? I, there were two things I liked at school, math and history. 
And so something around that. Uh, and first I started studying math, and then I felt it was a bit too theoretical, and I wanted something more practical. And then this economics thing brought together a little bit of more practicality, a little bit of math, uh, yeah. some historical perspectives, and somehow I ended up in this, yeah. We've seen you teach in class, and yeah. we've seen your humor come out. So were you one of those, the jokes of the class, or were you one of, how, what kind of student were you? No, no, I learned my jokes later from Monty Python. So <laughs> the, yeah. No, no, I, I didn't joke in class, no, never, ever. Yeah, not like us bad students over here. This is us trying to make up for yeah. actual demeanor in the class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to find other ways, right? <laughs> Entertain ourselves. Yeah. No, but jokes are good, yeah. I mean, moving up, and talking about, you know, academia now at this point, because mm. obviously it wasn't just, you, everyone had their early college years, and we're not mm. always proud of everything that happened in those early college years, Yeah. but I mean, moving on from that, you, you did your master's program somewhere, and... Well, at the, at the time, yeah, so I studied in Germany, and there wasn't a real, this distinction between bachelor and master didn't exist at the time, mm -hmm. no? so you did a study, mm -hmm. um, and I went to university, enrolled and occasionally went to classes <laughs> occasionally and uh, at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> sort of passed the exam yeah yeah so I studied around a little bit so I, I did um, mostly economics yes I, but I started studying in France and uh, mainly to learn French mm -hmm. uh, and then I found out that the French courses weren't recognized in Germany so uh -huh. I went back and then I studied a little bit seriously for a while, mm -hmm. uh, and then I went off and studied for a year Chinese and Indonesian. What? Uh, and then I went with economics again. Where? 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 All at the same university in Bonn. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's like a semester abroad. In yeah, not really abroad at home, but in a different language. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh. So, so yeah, at the time Chinese? I I thought that it would be interesting to learn a Far Eastern language because. You know, somebody to learn something about the culture and understanding, oh, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I noticed that. Uh, yeah, it was. I had a hard time learning Chinese. Yeah, so we learned six hundred characters. I've forgotten all but one. Uh, and uh, Which one's then that? I gave up. Yeah, the character for person. Yeah, run. Yeah, so yeah. It was, it was just a stick figure. I mean, I don't know. Sort of. Yes. Yeah. Sort of. I tried of, to take sort of, Chinese. Sort of, oh man, yeah, yeah. it's tough. No, no, it's 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 uh, learning the characters, remembering the characters is serious work. So after half a year, I gave up. And well, that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. You this didn't is last. A, this is a s inspiring story, right? Yeah, Danny didn't last four <laughs> months. He didn't. La so. Move on from my past failures. Failures. Yeah. Let's just talk about the business. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is your specialty, so. Well, my sp if, to the extent that I have any special... They, I had a consultant once who told me there are two types of people in life. You know, mm -hmm. so, so those who know everything about nothing and others who know nothing about everything. Uh, and That's true. I'm a little bit on the nothing about everything side. Mm -hmm. And so um, am I a, a business specialist? I wouldn't say so. I'm more on the policy side of things. So government policy towards creating an environment for, for business and, and working on topics like that. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing that I've pursued starting a little bit in university, sort of drifting into that, and then through a lucky break, I got into the World Bank, and that's 
A lucky break. How did that? How did that happen? How did that happen? You really want to know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I, I, I have. <laughs> you know, at the time in Germany, it was the case that students spent a lot of time in university, or you you could afford to spend a lot of time in university and not finish. Yeah, okay. We, we had one guy at the university who was in his thirty eighth semester, <laughs> so uh, that and still benefited from the student subsidies at there. So. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah, in Germany it's almost free to go to university. Yeah, and it was particular, and it was less disciplined then than there is now, uh, on 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 individuals to. Yeah, yeah. So you could you could uh, hang out there for a long time. So I I mean I didn't take that long, uh, but. Um, when I was the end of my 20s, and so my mother got worried and I would never get a job. Uh, and the um, and I applied for a bunch of jobs, and I had no luck, mm. and I was declined everywhere. Uh, and then some, one day, uh, an old acquaintance fr of my mother showed up at home mm. and said, uh, what would you like to do in life, young man? So <laughs> And I said, well, you know, I'm interested in economic development topics and stuff like that, so... Well, what about the World Bank? Why don't you apply to the World Bank? Well, uh, they'll never take me. Uh, and so, um, but then he said, why don't you apply? And he convinced me of the wisdom of starting applying at the top and working your way down, no? <laughs> rather than giving up immediately uh, and doing it the other way around or something. Uh, and uh, then, you know, by a series of coincidences, uh, I got chosen. Yeah. I mean, there were roughly a little bit over 3,000 people applying for 10 jobs uh, in that competition. Wow. And so... There's... Well, yeah. Just it, chance, so, right? So there has to be something that you bring to the party, um, mm -hmm. but there's also a fair amount of luck. No? So at the end of the day, there, there must have been several hundred other people who could just as well have qualified. And, and at the time, how, how old were you? How old was I when I applied? Oh my God, I don't remember a thing. Uh, Nineteen twenty-eight, I think. Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. I'm yeah. almost there. <laughs> that age. <laughs> I better start applying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Twenty-eight, twenty-nine, there about. I think just about, still twenty-eight. Okay. Probably a good thing that you didn't get into any of the other smaller jobs. Yeah, yeah. In retrospect, it was great. You know, I, I, I was disappointed. Yeah. Uh, some jobs I, I was interested in and, and so on. And it didn't feel very good, and I was making second plans for fallbacks and so on. Uh, persistence. Persistence but, is key. Yeah, right? persistence and is also good. And yeah. chance, right? Chance is a is a fair amount of thing in life. In fact, it's chance. So <laughs> no, you can only chance helps those who are prepared, as they say. So to some degree, to some degree, preparing yourself for taking a hold of something that comes along is is good. But you know, at the end of the day, you never know. In the in the selection in the group that I was taken in, the person who decided or had a major say in deciding uh, who got bumped up into the last interview rounds and so on, was somebody who was willing to put forward candidates with relatively unusual backgrounds. Uh -huh. So uh, in that group that finally was selected, there was a child psychologist, there was an anthropologist, and it was myself. I spent most of my... I, I studied in university economics, but I spent most of my time working for Amnesty International. So the uh, I didn't oh. do that much ec in economics. So... The, uh, the combination was what made it, and the, the fact that there was this person who was looking for, quote-unquote, uh, more diverse profiles of people, uh, that 
was part of the luck what got you in yeah. And Amnesty International. How, mm. So how many years have you done work with the Amnesty? Well, not paid work, volunteer work, so mm. nine years. Nine years. And this was before working at the World Bank? Yeah, yeah, that was before. I, I left, yeah, I ended up in the German board and the International Executive Committee of the organization at the end. Ah. And so I felt on both sides this would not be a good thing to be on in the World Bank and still on the Executive Committee there. So I left, yeah. So yeah. You're playing it off like chances. Yeah, but it's... <laughs> 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 you're, pull, you're pulling my leg right now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you, you're being nice to me, but uh, there is more chance involved in this than you think, yeah. Now, now you're 28. At the time, were you still like, how was life? Were you enjoying the, the 28 years of a student of of like getting? So you earlier on talked about the college experience. Now, in Germany, there isn't a college experience, or there isn't as, or there isn't or wasn't as much of the the U.S. style college experience. Right. Right. And so I spent most of my time. My experience was mainly working in in, in the environment of a little bit in the university, but mostly with Amnesty. No? So the, the groups, the people you meet through, mm-hmm. through that. And so there, that, that was most of life. Was it fun? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds... So I, it felt like something that I felt was uh, a, a decent and good thing to do. And it, it was, the, the people were, were good and yeah. yeah. So I liked it, yeah. Before, before we get into doing business and in the indicator... Uh-huh. Uh, can you tell us more about your career, how it progressed? Ah, the career. <laughs> yeah, so once the big break came and I was uh, hired at the World Bank, then I worked there for for nine years and uh, worked in various fields, uh, in energy, policy, uh, energy projects, uh, trade policy, financial sector policy, industrial policy, macroeconomic policy, so th- a very broad thing that very few organizations give you the chance to to look at all of these different things, work in all of these different areas. And in retrospect, one of those things in industrial and trade policy was what prepared me for the doing business project that you wanted to ask me later about. Yes. So that, that was a, a piece of work uh, on Morocco in 1986-87, uh, where the task was to look at the, the environment for businesses. Mm-hmm. At the time, the World Bank called it enterprise development. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this question about how you figure out whether the environment for business is conducive, helpful, makes for good public policy, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah, and what what I got to learn there is how there is this myriad of regulations surrounding businesses and, uh, and and then how to how to take a view about whether these hundreds and hundreds of regulations make sense or don't make sense. How do you, how do you come to a view that this, this, these rules are good, these rules are bad? You'll always find somebody who is in favor of a rule and comes up with some rationale on why it should be there and somebody else who's against yeah. it and why it shouldn't be there. Always and the red tape. How do you tape. make up your mind? W- which part of red tape is red and which part is good tape? Uh, and so... Then the policy, the policy. and then how to how to organize the the thinking about this. So when organizing the thinking about it, what what struck me then and that later on led to do help with the doing business project was looking at the life cycle of a firm. So what rules and regulations governing it when entering the market? What rules and regulations governing it while trying to make a good business? And, and then finally, what rules and regulations govern the exit from the market? 
So that, that came out of that work. And then for several years, nothing of that type happened. Yes. Yeah. So then the career sort of petered out a little bit, and I applied internally for a bunch of offices, field offices, to go abroad and work in different countries. And again, no, no, no. Uh, and then somebody offered me a job at the OECD in Paris, so uh, <laughs> or, or to apply, and so I applied. And I was lucky again. Uh, not quite everywhere, but of course the, that the, the World Bank allows you to travel yeah. to a lot of places and see a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, and then um, yeah, so I worked there for two years, and then and then I got a call back from World Bank to do something there, and went back. Yes, I worked on infrastructure policy for four years, and then I got a job as chief economist at the Royal Dutch Shell Corporation. And so, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, it's basically thanks to Tony Blair. Tony uh, Blair? Yeah, well, you remember uh, yeah, once upon a time, you know, yeah, the Tony British. Blair. There was this windfall election uh, where Labour got a lot of votes and, and the Liberal Democrats in England as well in 1997. And the then chief economist, uh, first of all, at, at Shell, chief economists are not career positions. Okay. They take in people from the outside for three years and then rotate them to get some new perspectives or whatever. Okay. And so the um, the then chief economist, who today happens to be the leader of the Liberal Party, Vince Cable in the, in the UK, uh, had stood for as a parliamentarian in his district uh, and to his surprise was actually elected no? because of this landslide <laughs> victory. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so he took up his, his position as parliamentarian and thereby vacated the, the Shell chief economist position. And so and Shell was looking around for somebody, and, and they happened to be looking for somebody with uh, some exposure in regulation of utilities, uh, regulated businesses of various types. And so I fit the bill after the work that I had done at the World Bank. And yeah, it worked out. So I went there. So when we see Tony Blair, we got to give him a handshake yes. for your benefit. Yes, yeah, so thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, and then then after the regular time of three years, I had to go back and I tried to get something at the World Bank again, and I was lucky again and got a job there. And yeah, by that time you were established. Yeah, but still. Uh, you would be surprised how many people with interesting resumes have trouble getting to the next step. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but yeah, it didn't hurt, no? So, yeah, and yeah, I'm not saying it was, it was bad, it helps, but yeah. th there's still that randomness. And so then I got a decent job there. I got became director at the World Bank for various private sector development issues, business environment included. And uh, that's where the Doing Business Project started taking shape. Uh. At, at, at Shell Dutch Company? No, no not oh. at Shell. No, no, at the World Bank after, 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 after I'd been, been there. So there uh, we had to reorganize a little bit. And then uh, after having done that, I was trying to rebuild. There, there was a lot of work in the World Bank done on privatization after the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. So mm -hmm. selling also the companies, etc. And when I came back, that period was sort of going towards an end. And... I thought we needed to do things that were more on government regulation for businesses, uh, et cetera, rather than privatizing everything. Yeah. Yes. And so 
uh, I was looking around at what to do there. And one thing I had become convinced of by that time was that you can make all sorts of arguments and clever, write clever papers, but what, what helps if you can quantify things, if you can develop indicators. Yes. Uh, that gets people's attentions and makes things comparable between countries and between companies and so on. And so we did surveys, what you've seen in the class, the enterprise surveys is, is one thing that we put together. At the time, they pre-existed in some form, and then we emphasized this and changed it a little bit and moved with this. And then I was looking for people who work in this area, and I came across this guy uh, who had written a number of interesting papers, Simeon Jankov. And uh, one of his papers was on a new indicator system. Yes. And I was doing business. And so he, his uh -huh. first indicator, the, the first paper was on uh, indicator to uh, what, what processes it takes, what cost and time to set up small businesses. Mm -hmm. And he had done a very nice paper, so I invited him to come over, and he said, oh, I have all these plans for all this whole indicator system, and here's this and that and the other. Uh, and I said, and I'm looking for somebody like that. <laughs> and, and so, so chance again, it strikes. So, yeah, chance again struck. And it w he couldn't sell his idea to other people. He had tried to sell it to, to other people. And, and it, it, struck <laughs> a, it struck a chord with me because, A, the quantification idea, and then, as I mentioned earlier, from his Morocco experience, from his Morocco work experience, the, the, the setup, looking at first the setup of businesses, then how businesses operate, then how they go out of business, sort of the organization of the material, the thought process made sense to me and what, I, what he had written about it. And I was able to put together a financing package to, to make that all work. So in some sense, I was the venture capitalist. No? <laughs> so he had the idea, the intellectual idea, together with other people at Harvard, uh, and he brought that to the World Bank, and and we made that happen then, and yeah. And then it, it came to be. So how how long did it take from meeting him to it being official indicator uh, for the World okay, Bank? Okay, yes. So the we started setting up. So he, I don't know exactly when he started working on this. So it must have been the late nineties, uh, with the early indicators. Uh, and then he went to the World Bank, worked worked there, and developed it further, etc. We met in 2001, uh, and then it took about two years to bring, get out the first report. Okay. Uh, with, I think, five indicators at the time, uh, and 433 countries. 433, and, okay, 133 countries. 133, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not 400. Not, no, not no, that many not, in the world. <laughs> not yet. It takes a few more secession movements to get there, yeah. So the... Um, and, and nowadays, I think it's 190 countries and so on, and uh, 11 indicators. Indicator yeah, so, yeah, so that took another two years or so, mm -hmm. and, and then some extra additions uh, later on. What I learned from this is if you wanted to do a really good indicator that is robust, uh, that where you check it's doable, it means something, you have a signed, more or less scientific paper, at least publishable in very good journals, uh, that demonstrates as best as one can that it matters for policymakers and, and, and that it matters for life on Earth. Uh, that is a process that takes, I would say, four years or so for mm. a particular indicator, so it's a long time. Yes. After doing business became known and relatively prominent, uh, lots of people called and said, we want to do an indicator on this. Tell us how you do an indicator. 
Yes. When you say, oh, you need four years uh, <laughs> the whole to do something. First, first, you have to have a clever idea. You need four years. No, they all, yeah, they all wanted something by Christmas yes. uh, or whatever the major holiday Or they is. went, oh, what, what, what new indicator do you have in mind that I can yeah, use? Yeah, yeah. Okay, wow. So for, for our viewers or our listeners who don't know what the Doing Business Indicator does, yeah. can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so... Businesses are surrounded by all sorts of regulations, and the Doing Business Indicator tries to capture key features of the institutional environment in which business opera businesses operate. And so what it does, it does that through 10, 11 indicator sets, uh, which capture, for example, how it, what it takes to register a business, then what it takes to hire labor, what it takes to get finance, what it takes to... Uh, pay taxes, uh, how to trade with others, and finally, insolvency procedures. And so so it, and always it looks at what are the rules and regulations that governments have made. I mean, governments write a lot of people uh, pay, uh, stuff on, uh, on paper uh, and pass rules and regulations, and yes. then you, doing business, tries to summarize what they do. And so I gave there are two basic methodologies. I already briefly mentioned one. Like in this registration of businesses, you look at what kind of process steps do you have to go through to set up your business, and each one of those steps, uh, how long does it take, and what does it cost yes. to go through that step, and that you you code and then create one indicator out of that. So that's that's one methodology. The other is you look at a, a particular type of law, for example, in, in the indicator on getting credit. You look at creditor rights as one input. And you look at what kind of rights do creditors have. Do they have seniority in the credit system? Do they have access to collateral? Uh, do they get good information on credit, et cetera? And you code that and, and basically code the law by saying this feature is there, this feature is not there with one, zero codings. Uh, and that way you create a bunch of indicators. And then we put them all together in one group. So we had 11 high-level indicators. And then we put them all into one big indicator ranking for the world, saying this country has <laughs> the on the dimensions that doing business measures the, the the most conducive environment, the greatest ease of doing business, and this country has a very difficult one, uh, and that created uh, political <laughs> that has political salience like I would never have imagined. Sounds so like you made a lot of people angry. <laughs> a lot of countries probably weren't too happy, right? Yeah. So one of the, our board members in the World Bank once said, that the, amongst the executive directors representing the countries, you know, the only country that can ever be happy is the country at number one. Yeah. So everybody else feels, ah, oh, why are we not number one, or why we're this, or why we're that? But most countries actually compare themselves to some others that, for some reasons, they think are sort of peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and by the same token, some countries don't like to be compared with countries they don't think are their peers. Uh, so there, there were a bunch of richer countries, so to speak, or uh, who were unhappy to be compared with lesser developing countries. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a fact of life that developing countries are catching up, and developing countries sometimes uh, get a better business environment in shape. Very surprised the other night. I was looking up on the little peace index, and mm. I was just scrolling through. Just kept going. I was in the triple digits before I found the United States. <laughs> in the triple digits. <laughs> Yeah. Or something to know. Yeah. So 
So in the doing business indicators, uh, there is a relatively reduced role for judgment. Uh, so because once the indicator is designed, the, the, the scoring of the numbers are on the basis, on, on a clear methodology that is published, et cetera, and is based on the text of laws and regulations. And so it plays back to governments what they have actually written down on paper. Uh, and the U.S. in that particular case was in the top ten somewhere. Uh, the uh, yeah, it's true on that paper. they're also the <laughs> they're also the top ten lists in the world, no? which are sometimes funny and interesting. And um, but you ask yourself, what the hell went through the authors' heads when they did this? Yes. Uh, with doing business, at least what you can do, it's it's. Um, I challenge anybody to find a more transparent indicator system. Um, and implying this, the thing that I can see it being most useful for is for investors looking to go into developing areas and target the right country in the right area. Because, you know, in the past, wasn't it more of a shoot-or-miss, you know, if you want to go into Africa and you don't really know, you have to wade through all these different kinds of papers, different indicators that weren't really related. Or find someone you trust or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I, I would think when, when we, we asked some companies on what they use indicators for and where doing business and other the others... So the, the companies tended to like more the enterprise surveys that yeah. we did. Okay. So more qualitative, more detailed uh, information about how enterprises experience life, whereas doing business describes what kind of policies are, are on paper by government, what are, what are the official rules and regulations. And so they said we, the companies that had, a, to my mind, the most interesting answers were saying we used doing business to see how difficult might it be to su create supply chains in the country? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you want to create new businesses uh, and, s and, and see them succeed around you, uh, that's where doing business can give some pointers. Um, so I think the main audience and the main constituency for this is policymakers. Uh, so because doing business by virtue of upsetting a lot of people also gets a lot of conversations going. Uh, and then a lot of reforms. Mm -hmm. and, and so the companies, uh, and both companies and governments, and rightly so, once you think this through, it's obvious doing business captures only parts of reality, and you need to have an intelligent discussion around indicators to make them, to use them well. Yes. Uh, and so the debates are always about, uh, ultimately it's all about whether you can have an intelligent discussion around indicators. And our basic proposition is that with indicators, you can have a more intelligent, with good indicators, you can have a more intelligent discussion than without. Okay, so do these kind of pop up a little bit more around the election time for different uh, countries? Or is this like, how often basically are these updates and these indicators? They indicate annually. 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 So they may get particular salience during election times, right. yes. Uh, but it's an annual thing, and uh, they're annual prompts. And a lot of governments have est have established mechanisms to regularly to review them and to to work on them. And some some presidents of this of countries in this world have told their finance ministers or economy ministers, "I want my country to go up in the rankings and do something." Uh, <laughs> so it, yeah. it's it's. When, once you think about it, if you're a president of a country and run the country and, and you tell your economy minister, improve my business environment, then the guy goes away and uh, he or she comes up with some plan and you have a hard time judging what does that mean, mm -hmm. uh, what they come back with. Doing business, you can have, it's, you can comp 
fair between countries. Uh, you can be more precise uh, whether the change you introduce is a change to the better and how it compares to other countries. And it's a metric to, to manage your own ministers. Uh, and, and that's increase, and, yeah, and that's that and keep them in line. It's, it's imperfect, like all other measures, but compared to not having any system, uh, it actually helps see, generate some. See, I got a lot of flack for because I came here to study international business, a master of international business, and to do a specialization in Africa. And people are always like, Why are you going to Africa? You want to do business there? It's going to be nothing's going to get done, it's going to be corrupt. You're not going to get anything accomplished. But I always tell them, hey, it's an opportunity anywhere you go. It's, there's so much potential. But doesn't Times Magazine flip their opinion on Africa? <laughs> Every 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So uh, on Africa, I would say that uh, there was a disappointing... There, uh, first of all, Africa has many different countries. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. And then That's true. <laughs> people just label, label yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the people talk about... China, <laughs> India, and Africa. No? So, of course, China and India are continents as well, but uh, lots of other countries are named one by one. Africa is often put together into one big giant region. Giant giant region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, first of all, there, there are Three a times. bunch of different countries. Second, um, overall, the continent didn't do too well after mm -hmm. independence, but then since the mid-90s, there have been major improvements. Mm -hmm. And there has been relatively good performance, and around the time of the uh, over the last decade and so on, after Asia, Africa had the highest uh, economic growth rates per capita in in, in the world. Mm -hmm. So not perfect, but not as if it was hopeless. No? So stuff is happening, and the, in the first round, what helped was getting better macroeconomic policies into place, less inflation, a little bit of fiscal discipline, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then in the second round, a little bit more uh, ease of doing business, including stimulated, including reforms stimulated by doing business. Yeah. And all, altogether, that helped a little bit. And then where it'll go, how it'll go, who knows. But I think fundamentally what you said is uh, potential is the issue here. And, and, potential. And there, and there is potential, yes. Yeah. I think many people are shy, are, are turned off by what some would say is the institutional um, arrangements in Africa. They're not as being as structurally sound as probably someone from Europe is used to. But the opportunity for economic growth and... I think even the, it's called the demographic dividend. I, that, that's as fancy for having a huge growth rate in the next couple of years with the amount of population. So many people are going to be there to work and to consume goods. It's, yeah. it's, you can you tell, you could tell me more about that. I mean, this, am I smart in making my decision? Well, you never know uh, <laughs> how, the, how the world is going to develop. <laughs> the one one thing with the way you were talking what it reminds me of is before the financial crisis of 2008 so several years before the Gallup polling organization had an annual poll that was used for example by the World Economic Forum at its annual meetings about how different people in different regions look at the future and so the, some basic questions were in there. For example, do you think uh, life next year or in the future or for your children will be more prosperous than for you? And will it be more peaceful than for you? And so the most optimistic region that systematically came out of this and much more optimistic than the rest of the world was Africa. Mm 
and uh, and that seems to reflect the upside potential now that the continent has. Uh, it doesn't mean that this necessarily gets realized, but there, there was this this optimism. Uh, there is and still is this optimism, relatively speaking. Yeah, and the most m the most yeah. pessimistic region, uh, Western Europe. Western Europe. I, I could. I could. Yeah. So. Uh, that tells you something. And then, yes, the, the demographic dividend is there. There is people at working at, at the of working level age are, are likely to increase in Africa, whereas people who are dependent on working age level people, pensioners and young uh, young children, will decline in relative importance in Africa. So there, that's the demographic dividends that they have there. So there is potential. Will it work? which countries will pull it together and so on, not quite clear. A lot of Africa, as you well know, is still dependent on natural resources, oil, gas, minerals of various types. Yes. And that, that is not necessarily, so, but the more hopeful signs are that after the drop in commodity prices in recent years, the countries that are not so dependent on commodity prices have actually done fairly well. Uh, okay. In Africa, whereas the it's it's the Nigerias of this world that haven't done so well in in recent years, so right. and some stories are pretty amazing. Uh, one can quibble with all sorts of things, but Rwanda is is a story that is uh, after the genocide of 1994 is, is a turnaround story, which is quite amazing. Kenya, and Kenya is, a, is Kenya is pretty vibrant, etc., yes. and so has has a lot of potential. Uh, but yes, the the risks remain. You know, corruption is there. Governments pr governance problems exist in many countries. Uh, but then the whole world developed out of governance problems. You know? So governance problems in Germany a few hundred years ago were pretty major. Uh, <laughs> and That's true. And the, the all development, the the big mystery of development is how dysfunctional more or less corrupt societies became sort of functioning not so corrupt societies yes. uh, and nobody really knows how that works and, and there's no engineering manual uh, to do anything about that and so but working away at it and and, and relatively these countries are fairly new country I mean well not it's last within the last 70 years they yeah, yeah, yeah. sovereign nations so it's still building it's still a process yeah so Give it time; it may. So I would. There is definitely potential, like always. One never knows which potential is going to be realized when. Yes. Uh, one thing is also quite amazing when you look at the back at the history of the 20th century in, in terms of economic development. In the first half of the 20th century, Africa looked relative, relatively speaking, positive. Yes. What re looked really bad was East Asia, uh, or Asia in, in general, and so people who would comment on the, the prospects of Africa versus, not that the current nations existed, but the prospects of the area relative to, let's say, China at, at the time might be more down on China than, than they were on Africa. But then something happened in the second half of the 20th century that brought a lot of Asia, East Asia in particular, into very fast development mode. Demog demographic and dividend? It, that, was Maybe. Part, that, was part, that was part of it. Yeah, there were policy changes. There was demographic dividend, but it wasn't that they weren't corrupt. No? <laughs> so that still happened. So that still happened. So over corruption is ultimately not good for economic growth, and it's unfair. Uh, but borders usually. But, 
but you have to every it cannot be true that you have to first abolish all corruption and only then can you do well okay no country ever developed that way so uh, the issue uh, so if 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 there are some people like you say that say there are some corrupt governments in africa okay fine uh, but the real question is, are there signs of developments that will move the countries up a step or two? And yes, there seem to be. That's, that's important because a lot of us, I mean, we're in a we're at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, but at the same time, we would like to do something more than just make profit. And <laughs> of course, everyone needs a little money, but at the same time, do something that's seen to make a change. And some development work. And some people think that Africa, you only go to Africa to do development work instead of business. Well, yes. And I, I just like to clear that up, you know? You know, I think everywhere, Africa or whatever else, the, the, the abolition of poverty or the reduction of poverty comes from successful businesses. Uh, it doesn't come through aid budgets that are get redistribute income. The, just when you look at the numbers, the aid budgets are tiny compared to the overall wealth creation in the world. And wealth creation comes from functioning markets and businesses. And so people who say that business is about greed and development is something different, I think they got it wrong. Uh, so, and business, is, most people in business are successful. I would, I, some people go into business and say, I just want to make money. Most most people go and choose a job uh, because they like doing certain things or they find something interesting. Uh, yes. And Bill Gates probably didn't produce this little computer uh, because he said that's the way yes, I can become the richest person <laughs> in the world. Yes. Uh, but because he found co computing fascinating. And so, and so I would have thought uh, those who do stuff that they really believe in and are passionate for and do that well and do it in a way that they, they would get rewarded. If, if they do something that actually customers want, yes. they will be rewarded with profit. Uh, and fine, you know. Profit is a measure that customer services, customer needs are being served. It's kind of hard to make a profit if you do something that people don't want. <laughs> That's uh, the truth. Yeah, it's true. I mean, so nope. in that sense, profit is 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 one of many, uh, one and not a not an unimportant measure of meeting customer needs, and mm -hmm. in, in that f in that sense, it's a measure of social performance as well. Yes, on the topic of development work, but for those of our listeners looking to to go into that field, where 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 would you start if you were a student? coming from FS or anywhere in the world, or yeah. someone who's looking to move away from just the rigors of everyday corporate life? All right, so now I'm going to go back to what you were just saying. So working in a corporation that does, that creates value, good products, good services in a developing country, let's say in, in some African country, yes. uh, that in and of itself is part of development. Okay. Uh, and so the way you use the word development, you're looking at development organizations that are specifically dedicated to something called development. So <laughs> the, the, the multilateral organizations, the World Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, Africa Development Bank, or whatever it may be, uh, or, the, or the domestic ones, the China Development Bank, or KFW here in Germany, or, or whatever it might be. Uh, how to go there? 
Well, typically, I, I, I cannot speak for most of them, but many of them have, um, I would say, three basic ways of getting there. One is trainee programs, like the program I got mm. through in the World, World Bank, yeah. where uh, after studying and a little bit of work experience, you go through a competition and, and either get hired or not. Yes. Uh, the second one, they hire mid-career people who have developed expertise, for example, by having worked in a business and become successful in a particular area that later on is of interest to the development organization and then they hire you mid-career. Yes. Or you just hang around and circulate around the organization, have lots of coffees, drink lots of... <laughs> <laughs> meet, meet lots of people. Yes. And... Yeah, right. That'll help, yeah. Yes. And the uh, and then hope that one day there is a match between who they currently need and what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. And then once you sort of have a foot in the door, you try and make yourself indispensable and um, then maybe make a career in the organization. Yeah. So those are the base, basic ways, I would have thought, not only in these, but in, in many organizations. Yes. Um, that, 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 you know, it brings me to think, okay, now, okay, I've chosen Africa, mm. uh, at least us, me and you, Danny. For, for us, what advice would you give us as the next market to go and do business in? Would it be Asia, Africa, Latin America, or should we be looking more simply at North, Amer- North America or the Caribbean? Uh, where you can be most successful, so I, I, I don't have a view. <laughs> no, uh, no view? Not really. Most First potential. All, where do you see the most potential? Most potential in these regions? No, I, 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 I genuinely don't have a view on that. Okay. So uh, I would think, number one, it will depend more in a more fine-grained way on the kind of country, the kind of sector you're in, on the kind of product you're offering or the kind of service you're offering. Yes. And so you can be very successful in cement in Nigeria if you get a foot in there. Uh, <laughs> or, or, you, you know. Or telecommunications in Kenya. Yes, oh, yeah. for example. Mobile banking. So, yeah, so lots of different opportunities exist. I think ultimately it really helps to work on something that one likes doing. Um, that's another thing I was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to go somewhere where it's like kind of developing and you're, you're, it's really risky and there might not be a huge cap to what you can do, you have to have some kind of intrinsic value that you come from like working with people yeah. that need it more than just having a cement truck go around and, you know, in Germany. You know, I'm sure you could find a place for that pretty easily. But finding those small niche places yeah. where people really need you, those, those commodities that like just so far just to going somewhere like Tanzania where they don't have access to that. You know, you might not make as much profit, but if you really feel like you're enjoying this or you feel like the people that you are mm. giving this to, like they, they really need it and you take like value from that, who's to say whether profit is the main reason why you should be doing it? Yeah, and also, I mean, at the end of the day, one has to be clear. Uh, everybody sure. has to make profit. Also, non-profit organizations have to make profit because mm-hmm. every, if you have a, any activity where revenue is lower than costs uh, over time, that's kind of a activity that goes away. Uh, and so, yes, you, you would want to do something uh, where you can cover your bills uh, and have something for yourself. And once again, if, if, if you do something for the people of Tantania that that actually helps them. If you, if you do a good business in Tanzania, uh, one of the, the feedbacks or what tells you that it's a good business is w- whether they're willing to buy your stuff. No? 
uh, and paid for it. Yeah. Uh, that's not everything, uh, but that, that, that is the fundamental mechanism of development. We can talk about redistribution of income as long as the cows come home, yeah. uh, the, <laughs> or until they come home. But uh, that's not what has happened in the past. And when we look at the kind of sums that people are talking about, it's tiny compared to the wealth creation that can be generated by successful businesses and uh, is likely to be created by successful businesses. Okay. As we transition more into our student topics, we have a few questions that we ask each of our listeners. Mm -hmm. The first being, um, what is your favorite drink? My favorite drink. <laughs> that, 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 hey, that's ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> that's depends on the time of day, the time of year, the season, uh, the passing age, etc. What would it be today? You know, if I, if I had to have a drink after this, you know, I'm nearly um, a glass of red wine. <laughs> Ah, that's, that's, that's always relaxing, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that would be... Uh, yeah. Or uh, <laughs> that would be an option, yeah. <laughs> or in Germany, it would be mushrooms, you know, with, uh, with some game. Mushrooms? Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, it's a bad joke. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but it's all with potatoes, right? Or well, uh, it's game season, no? So... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was on God's stick. I don't even think I'm blamed for this. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I think Danny has this, the second question, though. The second question? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, let's go on to something crazy here. All right. <laughs> Tomorrow, you have one day. You have 24 hours. After that, you're blind for the rest of your life. But you can go anywhere in the world and be there instantly. What do you go see? Family. Family? Yeah. You can take your family. Ah, somewhere to look at. So what's the, yeah, the definition of beauty at this point? Oh, the definition of beauty. Not Angelina Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. too many surgeries. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, no, that, yeah, it's an interesting question, but uh, nothing comes to mind. Um, no, no, I'll stick with my answer. I, in what, in, in whatever family. environment, and uh, I would like to see yeah. them one more time. Yeah. One more time? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I think that's uh, that's probably the best thing, right? Well, you know, whatever. If you uh, you you try to help me with going, <laughs> taking the family somewhere else, <laughs> maybe the maybe the Northern Lights in in Scandinavia, but if, if they happen to be on on that ah. day, yeah, or or something interesting of that type, yeah. Okay, so the third question is, what what do you do? How do how do you organize your life? Oh. <laughs> Yes, at six thirty in the morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to throw some of John's questions this yeah, way that he does yeah, to us, yeah. right? <laughs> well, the, the fundamental organizational principle of my life at the moment is that I left a high stress job for a low, lower stress job, mm. so uh, there wasn't much room for anything while still at the World Bank. Yes. Um, now this teaching business is significantly better uh, because it's predictable when classes will happen yes. <laughs> and when they don't happen uh, so there are predictable vacation times as well yes. and it's interesting and I have to do something and time wise it's not as high pressure it's not somebody calls you the next day get on a plane do this or here's a consultant uh, here's a client who wants you to do finish a report or, or do something like that 
Yes. It's a much more uh, ordered life with predictable times when you can go on vacation, go see some things. Do you ever get uh, stressed though? Uh, rarely. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, it was getting reasonably stressful at the end. Yeah, yeah. So over the last few so years. Yeah, there's a certain amount of rush, but then, yes, and and some people have a really hard time winding down afterwards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, but it hasn't happened to me. Probably so shaking I, uh, after. I, yeah, yeah. No, this 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 doing. It's it's nice to be around. Uh, I, again, it was an accident that I ended up at universities. So, uh, the, but it actually feels good. So, um, yeah. Um, and we didn't mention it, but you, you're, you're a professor here at Frankfurt School, but you're also a professor at Johns Hopkins uh, yeah. for their business school. Yeah, yeah. No, not business school. Uh, there it's the, the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins in Washington, uh -huh. yes. which is the international relations school uh, of, of, of the university. They also have a business school, but th there it's, it's, it's a policy school. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. That's, that, that's, very, that's very interesting. So you, you balance this throughout the whole year? It yeah, so it, it, I, I sort of slid into this, and it sort of works. Uh, the spring semester I do in, in, in the U.S., yes. and then whatever the Frankfurt School tells me is the rest of the year uh, I, I do here. Yeah. <laughs> it, it keeps changing, right, as, as you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, first it was three months, now it's like a couple <laughs> No, but we're definitely glad you became a professor because, you know, you're here with us and we're learning some stuff.